Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Guy Nurpaz, founder and CEO of Tatango and author of Farm Don't Hunt, the definitive guide to customer success. Today, we'll be covering four main areas with Guy. First, customer success best practices. Second, we're going to pivot to quarterly business reviews, the who, what, when, and how to drive customer outcomes through QBRs how to measure the business value of QBRs, and then the key metrics that customer success should be using to validate the business impact of their solution. Guy, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Absolutely. Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me. As you said, I'm Guy Nirpaz. I'm the CEO and founder of Tutango. I've started Tutango in 2010 around the mission of customer success. We've been seeing the huge transition into SaaS and recurring revenue and, and cloud. And we set ourselves to come up with a technical solution and, and solve that for all those companies that are dealing with the challenge of centralizing their companies around their customers. Well, when we were first speaking, I mentioned what a pioneer you've been in the evolution of customer success. And wow, what a 12-year ride, huh? So let's start with, you know, you wrote a book, shared a lot of best practices. I love your blog. So let's start with, from a high level, what are the fundamental best practices that a customer service organization should make sure they use and deploy to optimize both customer retention and customer expansion? Absolutely. So first, I'd say that the way I look at the world today is that customer success is a company strategy. It's not just about the customer success team, although the customer success team has a very important part in running this strategy. The very high level you know, metaphor of customer success is if you want your customer eventually to grow their relationship with you by buying or re- renewing their contract or buying more, you need to make sure that everything ahead of that is being done in a way that delivers value to customers because initially there's like a promise and then over time this promise needs to be delivered and in many cases one of the challenges it morphs over time so we'll talk more about that in the qbr topic so you know the concept of farm don't hunt the book is that you will only bear the fruits of your prior investment and you can impact that at the point of harvest right you got to do a lot of work ahead of time uh, to do that so from a customer success strategy is first and foremost to be super clear about what are the objectives of the customers and what are they trying to accomplish and then create systematic scalable way to manage the customer journey to those positive outcomes Well, let's double click on that because one of the big challenges I see for customer success organizations are who is their customer? Of course, you've got your day-to-day liaison. Maybe they're a program manager. Maybe they're a super administrator power user. But you often aren't dealing every day with the executive or economic buyer. What are some of the best practices to make sure that you can involve everyone within your customer versus just your day-to-day contact? 
Yeah. I mean, basically what you're saying is, you know, a, a business or a company is a collection of people and each of them has different roles and different objectives, right? So that's the, this is where why kind of B2B is more complicated than B2C in that sense where you have many masters that you need to please, right? Or you got you to gotta take care of uh, multiple people. So I think the very first step that you need to do is track, you know, all the users on, on the account and their roles, right? You got you to have a system to know who they are, what's their uh, role in the relationship, and make sure that you engage appropriately, whether it's an executive engagement or user engagement through training usage or whatever, just to make sure that, all the stakeholders are being mapped and tracked and you have an engagement, designed engagement to you know, right cadence, right level of information to drive success towards the customer objectives. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to double click on that one more time, Guy, because one of the most common tools I see used by customer success organization is net promoter scores. And I recently conducted some research and it was over 80% of B2B kind of cloud and SaaS companies were using NPS. But as we dove down into that, we found that most of them are just do, conducting NPS on the users, but not on the economic buyers and on the administrators. Do you have a perspective on the value of aligning your net promoter score and customer health score to the different personas that you mentioned earlier? Yes. So first, I'd say that in today's technology and technology like to Tango, NPS is just one measure out of a lot of things that you can learn about your customers, right? NPS, you know, it's a great, it's a great visual way to capture sentiment, but still due to frequency where, you know, you don't send it uh, too often and due to response rate, which is good is 10%, you basically don't cover a lot of your customers or users. So you may want to consider adding significantly more data into how you assess your customer, what's called customer health, like usage and value and license utilization and other engagement channels and so forth. And much like that, you do need to segment your users and customers based on their role. So, so first you kind of, you ask, they don't send the NPS to the stakeholder, then, you know, yeah, you should send this to anyone in your customers that can add input into the way you, you, you support them, right? So I, I do see a lot of companies that use to tangle that send uh, their NPS to all users, not just, you know, the, the, the active users, including stakeholders and uh, financial buyers and so forth and so forth. And then you also analyze this accordingly because it has different meaning uh, with regards to, let's say, risk of an account being able to renew. One of the super common churn reasons that, you know, customer success teams report on is change uh, in champion, right? The champion leaves and the new one comes in and the new one didn't know uh, necessarily the old decision and brings their own tools or what they're familiar with. So that's something that you want to monitor and risk. So yeah, absolutely. I do see a lot of companies send the uh, uh, NPS across uh, the ranks within the company, within the customers, and analyze them accordingly, uh, group them at the account level, group them by role, and so forth and so forth. That allows them to really have a much more refined view of the situation. Yeah. What's interesting is we're collecting so much data on our customers today for customer success. Like you said, product analytics, business value delivered, usage trends, et cetera. But you penned an article on your blog in September of 2021. It really jumped out at me, and that was around quarterly business reviews. 
So I really wanted to get your insight, since you spent so much time thinking about it and writing the article on it. What are the best practices of when a customer success organization should deliver a quarterly business review? Who should be included from the customer and from the vendor? And how they should be delivered in person with high glossy presentation materials. But let's first start. How often should you deliver a customer business review? So I think the key is to have this value communication cadence, right? So QBR basically suggests quarterly, right? Every 90 days. But if you can deliver, if your business needs a different cadence or a different cadence is more optimized, you should definitely uh, try to do it. Uh, in many cases where companies have some challenges, basically producing the content for the quarterly business review and also getting the right audience into the room in order to discuss quarterly business review. So these kind of basic decisions of what's the right cadence for your business, who is the right audience, and what should be the agenda are the first few decisions that you need to make. And of course, there's some you know best practices. You know, I'll start by saying, and I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit further, is that the agenda needs to be communicated from the customer perspective and from a value kind of objective, value delivered uh, mapping, and and the progress over time. That kind of starts a conversation that allows for you know discovering more information about the customer that gets from the customer, and at the same time exposing more information to the customer. So. You know, everyone is on the same, has the same information set, the customer and the provider to have a meaningful conversation. You mentioned it's really important to have a great agenda. And one of the components of the agenda is value delivered. So, Guy, I've been in too many QBRs where the value delivered was often more user centric and productivity for the user versus business value that the CFO or CEO could actually measure. Do you have any recommendations on how to make sure that the business value and the outcomes are a key piece of the quality business review process? Absolutely. That That is tied into the ability to actually track the original motivation of, let's say, the purchasing, right? So if during the sales process, there was a, a discussion around why we're buying this, why we're making this investment, that needs to be captured and then followed up. And then in every consecutive business review, if those objectives are being morphed or changed or progressed over time, this needs to be tracked because that's kind of basically repeating back to the customer, you've made the purchasing decision in order, let's kind of let's simplify this. Let's use a, a marketing system as an example. You've you've made this uh, purchasing decision in order to grow uh, the top of funnel and meet your goals for this year to, you know, hit, let's say, 100 signups a day or, you know, something along those lines. That starts the conversation. Now let's talk about what is the activity, that is, but what was the result that was delivered or where we are tracking against those goals and then what has been done and what other opportunities exist in order to make it better. I'm just kind of describing a high-level flow. We're going to get into a little bit more details, but... I think the, what I'm basically trying to say that the most important aspect here is to first record and remember as an organization the reasons behind or the customer objectives to begin with. And secondly, run the conversation around high-level objectives first and foremost and value being delivered against those objectives and only then start drilling down into opportunities for improvement or areas that needs attention and, and so forth and so forth. 
It's interesting, Guy. I was talking with a client the other day, and they had an interesting best practice. They have a value engineering group. And the value engineering group in the pre-sales um, motion goes in and tries to identify the business value outcomes and help calculate the ROI. And then at a minimum, once per year, but often every quarterly business review, they actually ask for access to the customer to validate that the business outcomes and value continuously are being met so they can present that. And what they found by doing that and asking for that right and opportunity upfront, it increases the percentage of QBRs that the vice president or the economic buyer attends. Does that make sense as one way to try to get economic buyers to attend the QBRs? And if it does, are there other kind of tricks of the trade that you have to ensure that executive or economic buyer attends QBRs? Yeah, so you're making an excellent point on the value engineering. I'm seeing a lot of progress around that. And I think initially value engineering started around justifying big financial investments. I think where it is right now, it actually ties very, very nicely into customer success, where it's a very well-documented you know, business outcomes. Like uh, you've got metrics which are specific, which could be cost reduction or productivity improvement or... Uh, revenue growth and tie them back into like in a very uh, structured format into the uh, value that was actually being being delivered. And as long as those high level uh, metric exist and the customer success team is tracking them, right, operates at that level, that makes the conversation very effective. And you're rightfully saying that speaking at that level, this is the this is the data that is meaningful because it speaks in a in a business outcome in a business language to the financial buyers, to the CFO, to the executives. And if you want them in the meeting, then you definitely need to uh, make sure that this level of language and uh, you know, concrete, concrete metrics and concrete results are being uh, presented. However, that's not enough because let's remember that one of the key things, you know, if, if we, we think about QBR as a way to communicate value, but it also a way to communicate progress. That's why you're creating cadence. So it is super important to demonstrate that there's progress from, you know, meeting to meeting from, from time to time. If you don't want to lose the attention of, if you want the executive to come in every time, you need to tell something new every time. And preferably the new thing is progress against hitting the goals. And once you hit the goals, you set higher goals or different goals and you start tracking against those, right? Specifically, if you're thinking about, you know, relationships that span uh, multiple years. Yeah. One of the things I've used in the past was we'd have our quarterly business review. So then we have an executive business review. And that executive business review would ensure that it includes a C-level type executive from the vendor company and then that C-level executive from the customer. Does that seem to be a best practice that for your most strategic accounts, you make sure that your CEO or CRO or CCO attends and that's a way to get the customer's executives to also attend? Yes, I think that is one way to do it. I think as you as you kind of grow up in business and scale significantly, clearly the number of meetings the CEO can attend is limited, right? Even if they want to spend all their time every day in meetings, there's still a limit to how many they, they can attend. So yes, that could be one strategy, but then you got to figure out a way to scale it. And I think the way to scale it is to make sure that the quality of the participants and the quality of the conversation is, is effective. I, it might sound a little bit controversial, but I'll say two things here. One is if you want to have the conversation to be super effective, 
the technical details could be automated way ahead of time, right? So as an example, if you are producing usage reports to your customers on a weekly basis, then you don't necessarily need to spend the QBR to discuss usage. So that's one point. Secondly, I think that the role of a good portfolio manager in customer success is the ability to have conversations at executive level as well. And if it's not something that, you know, your current team is doing, you got to figure out a way to do it because to really scale the organization, you want to make sure that your entire brand, everyone that is meaningful, that communicates with a customer is able to communicate at the right level of, or the right altitude, if you will, of information. So if, if you know, if we think about this, there's one of the things that COVID taught us is that the most valuable currency that we all have is time. Right. So if I think about QBR and the time of the executive, and by the way, other attendees for that matter is a super valuable currency that I cannot, you know, undervalue. It means that the meeting has to have a clear purpose and a clear goal and a clear discussion points that allows for value being transferred from me as a provider to you as a as a customer. So if you think through these lenses, you find that there are multiple ways to make the QBR more meaningful, whether you bring executives and that's that's valuable from time to time, or you just make sure that the quality of the content, the quality of the discussion is such that uh, everyone that participates in, and specifically because you mentioned that executives, it's time well spent and they've came out of that with new insights or new understanding or even specific action items to move the ball forward uh, effectively. I want to highlight something you said, and you said it may be controversial, but you're, you're singing to the choir here. And that is, don't focus the QBR just on showing the reports, the usage metrics, et cetera, but share that ahead of time and actually create an agenda that focuses more on moving forward with business values and business outcomes. I thought that was great advice. So we're going to pivot from QBRs here in just one minute, but I have one more question for you. Often, I view QBR delivery as a vanity metric. The customer success manager said, you need to deliver these 20 customers quarterly business review you know, once a quarter. But there's no measurements for the benefit of delivering that QBR. So are, do you have any metrics or measurements that the chief client officer or, you know, the head of customer success say, I got real benefit from the QBRs this quarter as measured by. So I, I think you're making a terrific point. Activity is not a measure of success, right? Having a QBR is not a measure of success, right? So if, if all you do QBR because you think the right thing to do, but you don't know if it's working or not, then you know, I suggest don't do that. First, figure out what you're trying to accomplish. A classical measures of you know QBR is health, right? Customer health needs to improve, not as a result of QBR. QBR is just one way to drive or maintain a high quality health of a customer, right? And you can uncover issues, or you can resolve issues, or you know, close issues as part of uh, the opportunity to discuss uh, with the customer. So health is one. If you want something more specific to executive than what we've talked before, the NPS at the executive level or usage at the executive level and so forth. And I think, you know, momentum, right? If QBRs are good, the level of engagement is going to increase. The, the attendance is going to be full. They're not going to, there's not going to be a lot of rescheduling. 
and you know the the friction to set it up run it and follow up with that is going to be good if the qbrs are not good you know you'll start seeing a lot of rescheduling you'll see cancellation you'll see you know minimize the attendance or you know from uh the entire roster of the organization you're going to start seeing um, one or two people coming in and with, with a very low engagement so i think there's feedback on the engagement itself and there's feedback on the outcome of the qbr like impacting the health of the customer that leads to retention expansion and reputation and lastly i'd say that i'm a big believer in uh in feedback so one good idea to know if QBR is good or not and how you should improve them, run a CSAT for every QBR after the QBR to get the feedback. Was it working? Was the agenda good? Was it too long, too short? Did the key, uh, did the topics were covered? Was the information presented effectively? What would you suggest that we're going to do better next time, right? Once you start running that and you get the feedback and you actually act on the feedback, quality of QBR is going to improve dramatically. Okay, we're going to do something a lot of great entrepreneurs have become very good at, and we're going to pivot a little bit, and we're going to move away from QBRs. And the last topic I wanted to cover with you about customer success is how do we ultimately measure the business value of the customer success organization? We've talked a lot about customer health, net promoter score, product analytics. Those are leading indicators that will lead to customer retention. But what do you think the ultimate outcome metrics that customer success should be measured by, Guy? The ultimate metric is growth. Growth as in net revenue retention. You had a book of business or portfolio beginning of the year of a certain size, and by the end of the year, it needs to be out of this organization, out of this book of business, to be 120% more, 140% more if you're a really good company. One of the things that companies do realize very quickly as they model their business or they run their business is that losing customers really makes it difficult to grow. Growing the existing customer base, a lend and expand motion or expansion really adds a lot of boost into into the growth metrics of the business. So whether you want to look at that from net revenue retention, which is, you know, how much did you grow the customer base minus the, you know, the net growth, right? What was the increase? So you take the upsell minus churn, that's net revenue retention, or you want to be more careful and measure how many customer, customer logos do you lose in a, in a year and so forth. All of these metrics are super important. But ultimately, the impact is, you know, growth, right? So net revenue retention as a driver for growth is a very important metric. Yeah, net revenue retention is the trending metric right now in B2B SaaS and cloud. And it's the number one um, determinant for enterprise value to revenue multiples, both in the public and private markets. But it's interesting, customer success being measured by customer growth. Does that mean that they should have at least partial, if not primary responsibility for identifying upsell and cross-sell opportunities in a customer base if you have a product portfolio that lends itself towards upsells? Absolutely. I, th I think a huge mistake is not looking at customer success, the initiative itself, the strategy as a business, as a business strategy. And ultimately, the success of this investment is the ability to grow you know, revenue from existing customers. Another point here is that if you only look at that from, uh, let's say, a uh, defensive mindset, right, then you're losing half of the opportunity. If all you do is make sure that customers are not leaving, then the entire focus is defensive, uninspiring, in my opinion, and very, very reactive. But if you protect against risk and take action on them, and at the same time, identify opportunities and take action on them, 
and learn from this combined dynamics, you know, customer success teams are much better. Now, the question, what's the compensation model or the ownership model? I think that it varies and there are multiple ways to do it. But I still think that customer success, the entire motion is about growing the customer base by running a very effective customer journey. So first onboard them appropriately, drive value and adoption, detect the risk and take action on it and so forth and so forth. But all of this journey motion leads eventually, once it works, into a low churn in a high expansion uh, multiple that, you know, which is measured by net revenue retention. I love the recommendation. Don't play defense all the time. Know how to have a place for offense and measure yourself by growth. So the last thing we're going to do, guys, give the listening audience a chance to know you a little bit more on a personal basis through three quick questions. And the first one is, is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow today? Yes. So I think one of your recent interviewees, the CEO of Gong, Amit Bendov, who's also a friend, is uh, is someone that I recommend everyone, especially if you're in marketing or uh, entrepreneur, to to watch. He's a great guy as an individual, but also a very inspiring leader, in my opinion. A great recommendation. Not only what he's done with Gong, but the continued growth he's driving from moving from conversational intelligence to revenue intelligence. It's very um, rewarding to see what he's done. Second question, what tool, not to tango, should every SaaS company be using to help them scale? Look, I think right now, Miro and the tools like Miro, Figma, and you know, tools that allow you as an organization to really do brainstorming session uh, while we are all working remote are super important. I think what I've noticed initially in Tango that a lot of the meetings are very kind of, uh, you know, because of the format of Zoom, they are very kind of presentation heavy or, you know, business status heavy. But there's a lot of creativity that is needed. There's a lot of team come up with the best innovation, the best ideas by working together and collaborating. So being able to have this free form collaboration uh, experiences over Zoom or Teams or whatever tools you're using I think are huge advantage and, and are a must. So I have no like any specific preference, but all the tools that allow team collaboration like Miro are something that I think all teams are using. But if you're not, you, sh- you should use it or you should use more. Yeah, it's great that you mentioned that because the one thing I miss from in-person meetings, especially kind of strategy and planning meetings, is being able to walk up to that whiteboard and start drawing things. So being able to do it virtually, I think that's great advice. Last question. I have a daughter who just graduated college and a son who's just entering college next fall. So, Guy, if you were to talk to a recent college graduate or someone who's just entering their first job into career, what advice would you give them to be the next great B2B cloud or SaaS company founder? I'd say, first and foremost, follow your passion, right? Follow what what you like. I think the world today is so open and and undefined in a sense that, you know, very specific roles that try things that, you know, are near and dear to your heart and grow from there. I really think that there's no any specific career path that people should follow. There's no, there's no pattern, right? If there's a secret that we should tell everyone that there's no pattern, you just, you know, just go and there's opportunity and, and jump on the opportunities that you enjoy. A feedback from my career, I would say start entrepreneur much earlier than you think you should start it just because it's such a 
uh, enriching experience and a learning opportunity. And you meet so many great people while solving business problems, people problems, uh, product problems, technology problems. It's so kind of diversified. And I highly recommend the experience for many people. It's not easy, but I still recommend the experience. Love it. Follow your passion and err on the side of taking that entrepreneur journey earlier rather than later. Hey, Guy, thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics and Major Up podcast. Thank you, Ray, for having me. And that's a wrap to today's episode. And if you're enjoying the guests and topics that we're discussing on Metrics and Measure Up, it would mean the world to us. If you'd go and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app, go ahead and rate us and give us a recommendation how we can make the show even better for you. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Guy. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.